Hey family, welcome to the Realizing Revelation 7-9 podcast, a presbytery of San Fernando production. Realizing Revelation 7-9 means we are awakening to new meaning in Revelation 7-9, and we are working to make Revelation 7-9 a reality. I'm your host, Mark Fields, and this week we get to hang with Dia Jenkins. She's the director of Inbreak, which is a new worshiping community in our presbytery. Dia shares her personal story of becoming aware of racial differences as a young adult in New York, and she shares how Christian theology played a part of some of the ways we experience racism in America today. We talk about the difference in personal discrimination and systemic racism. And then Dia graciously reminds us that we all start from different places in this conversation. And she expands our interpretation of Revelation 7-9 to remind us we have a grace-filled responsibility to join in the work of gospel diversity and unveiling the kingdom of God right where we are. May you be inspired, emboldened, and unleashed into your work by our conversation with Dia Jenkins. Hey family, welcome to the Realizing Revelation 7-9 podcast, a presbytery of San Fernando production. Realizing Revelation 7-9 means we are awakening to new meaning in Revelation 7-9, and we are working to make Revelation 7-9 a reality. I'm your host, Mark, and this week we get to hang with an incredible sister, colleague, a friend, inspiration to me. I think that she represents such thoughtful kindness in any space that she walks into. In many of the spaces that I have walked into in the presbytery, many of which that I walked into in my seminary, she walked into before me. And me being able to witness the ways that she brought her full self to the space, her thoughtfulness, her creativity, um, her power. And when I think about her, I think about meekness not in how she holds back, but how her shoulders are back and how powerful she is um, directed and thoughtfully um, exerted in the world. So today we get a beautiful conversation with our sister, Dia Jenkins. She is the director of Inbreak, which is a new worshiping community in our presbytery. And she's an extraordinary artist. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up. For Dia! <laughs> Man, what an intro. <laughs> All of our in-studio Presbyterians are just thrilled you're here. <laughs> Such an intro. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. It's an amazing, amazing gift. Dia. Very, very appreciative. Mm. Dia, I'm so appreciative of who you are and how you show up in these spaces like I I shared. Would you give us a little bit of background for you, what race, culture, ethnicity is for you? Sure. I love the big, broad, open-ended question to start. Um, I will say that for me, um, race, identity, culture... Uh, didn't start to play a strong role in my life until I was an adult, which is actually kind of strange, I would say, um, for a lot of black women. 
Um, it was just because I, I kind of grew up mm. um, in a very suburban kind of sheltered context. And there was always a sense of being one of few people of color in the room. But uh, I grew up in such a way that uh, the bubble, if you will, was protected. And then um, I moved to New York uh, mm. well, many years ago now. <laughs> many years ago now. I moved to New York and just had um, a culture shock, uh, not just in terms of race and identity, identity, but in terms of um, how people groups moved within and around and amongst one another. Um, that was really my first time um, mm. encountering a space where I had to understand that being Black meant something when it came to space, when it came to mm -hmm. relationships. Um, I always had a sense of it. It's not that I was blind to it, but it was more um, evident if you will, when I moved to New York. And so it was then mm. that I began to kind of ask a lot of questions like, um, why is my race associated with uh, either exoticism or a lack of beauty? Or why is my race associated with um, a sense of like creativity or a sense of worthlessness? There were all these like extreme polarities happening. Um, and so I had to ask a lot of questions. Mm. It wasn't even necessarily about me personally all the time. Sometimes it was about um, people groups, like friend groups, um, going to a black church. Um, why is it that this black church is um, in a certain area that would be considered, you know, impoverished, whereas like all the white churches, super fancy, very nice. Not to say that all white churches are, are well-to-do, but um, just seeing the tension between the two was so evident in a compact space like New York City. Um, you couldn't help but notice it. Whereas like in the sur suburbs, you can kind of get around it, you know, you, you don't really leave your sort of neighborhood or your nook and cranny. But when you're traveling within Manhattan or Brooklyn, um, it's right there in front of you. And I think it's the same thing in California on the West End in L.A. County. Um, the disparities are glaring, even if there's an appearance of diversity because you have a lot of different cultural groups coming into these places like New York and LA. Um, once you start to really look into the details of how people are living, what their relationships are like, where they go to church, where they go to school, um, it just becomes really evident that um, the disparity is thick. And so for me, um, the questions of race, culture, identity, they have a lot to do with how people understand my people. You know, so it's not even always personally directed. Sometimes it's just about mm. black people as a whole or black women as a whole. Um, and, and just trying to understand why mm -hmm. so many are um, struggling in so many different areas when they are incredibly intelligent, incredibly creative, um, incredibly generous with their works. Um, why is it that so many have struggled up until this point? And of course, you know, we know a lot of the answer to that, but... Um, I didn't really start to ask those questions mm. until adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. When you say we know the answer to that, I have answers that I assume in my mind mm -hmm. about that. I think anybody listening has their own answers. And, and as many people as are listening are probably, there's probably that much different, at least even nuanced perceptions of what has happened or understandings of why that is. Would you share with us your understanding of why that is? Mm -hmm. You know, I appreciate you for catching me on that because sometimes I forget to ask, does everyone in the room start from the same place? And you're right. Oftentimes we do not. <laughs> mm. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, 
for this country, obviously, it goes all the way back to the slave trade. Um, and, you know, given the podcast that we're speaking on right now, um, the implications of how the church is intertwined into that um, is something that mm-hmm. I think collectively we're still unraveling. Um, even for me as an adult, I didn't even understand how intertwined the church and religion were when it came to the formation of race-related slavery. Um, I didn't even understand that until I started to really do research. Um, you just kind of assume racism, black skin, white skin, that's sort of the, the marker. But the way that um, religion played a part, you know, the seeking of salvation of uh, primitive souls, that kind of thing, uh, trying to exert... Um, a co-opted gospel, if you will, for the sake of white supremacy, but not languaging it that way, um, I think was something mm-hmm. that was very new to me, and it was shocking for me, and it was something that uh, really caused me to question, what kind of religion am I part of? What does it mean for me to be a Christian if this is also my legacy? You know, there are these two intertwining uh, streams, if you will. There's the black legacy in terms of just understanding what my ancestors went through to even get here and then what they went through once they were here on this land. And then also understanding that I am part of the body of Christ. I am also Christian. I follow Jesus. And part of that legacy contains a great deal of um, harm. You know, harm for people that look like me, harm for people that don't look like me. Um, And so it's just um, trying to grapple with the intertwining um, stories there has been very challenging for me. But also, um, Mm. you know, the issues that we're facing today when when it comes to race, identity, cultural heritage, um, it doesn't just stop when, you know, slavery was eradicated. You know, we go all the way into... Um, 2022, right? We go all the way into 2022 Mm -hmm. and we have to ask questions about um, the legacies that we're living into and living out of. Um, A lot of times, for me, I feel like the issue is not only about the people who just don't want anything to do with uh, people of color. I don't think that's the starting place. It's also about people who uh, want to be willfully ignorant of the issues or people who don't want to address the problems or people who don't want to see the issues, you know, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, or if we don't talk about it, it's not a problem. To me, that's an even bigger concern than just uh, the sort of blatant racism that you might see, um, you know, with police brutality or um, just someone just straight up being like, I don't like people of color. Um, and I, I think a lot about Dr. King speaking about this too, Um when you wrote the letter from Birmingham jail, mm. speaking about the white moderates, you know, like that to me, mm-hmm. and Jesus talks about this too. Um, anybody being lukewarm, mm. wanting to spit them out of his mouth, you know, like be hot or cold, be racist or don't be racist. But that in between space, I think is even more harmful because it's like you can uh, pretend or you can gloss over or you can act as if it doesn't exist, um, which to me is uh, even more detrimental. Because the thing is, it's like, if the racism is overt, then you know what you're dressing, right? You know what you're dealing with. But if it's somewhere in between and nothing's really being done and everything's being kind of blanketed over, um, how do we move forward? Mm-hmm. You know, How do we actually collectively heal if no one's willing to redress? or speak about, or do something about. You know, we can't just talk. We also have to do as well. Um, All of these Mm -hmm. things come to mind, and that's where I think, um, that's what I mean by some of the issues that we're facing. You know, that's what comes to mind for me Mm -hmm. when I think about that. 
I'm, I'm going to reflect back some of what I heard. I, because I think you shared so beautifully, like a, a hundreds of years of like <laughs> experience, history and your perspective and your experience of it. And then I want to get to what you talked about, the white moderate or pretending, because you had so much time in predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. And I want to know what that feels like to you. But I, I want to recap just for those who are listening. When you talk about religion being the source of some of the oppression or this framework that was utilized. So when we think about colonizing or um, colonies, mm -hmm. there was this way of creating hierarchy in race that didn't exist mm -hmm. or that has always existed. I think about Samaritans, even the Jews did this to others or the mm -hmm. Jews, the Samaritans were a mixed culture group that represented their exile in Babylon. When Jeremiah told them to make roots and to marry your mm -hmm. children intermarry because you ain't coming back here. You're mm -hmm. not going to be back in Jerusalem for a while. And then this people group, the Samaritans came to be, and then they were ostracized by the Jews. And then Jesus comes back and associates himself with them. Mm -hmm. And so all that to say that we see that in, in the Bible, we see it in the New Testament, we see it in the Old Testament, issues of racism. And racism, the base of that being um, um, the ability to discriminate on someone based on their race backed by systemic power. So racism, a racist act is, a, a, or discrimination is like a harmful act towards someone based on their something, discrimination. If we say racial discrimination is based on their race, if we say gender discrimination is based on their gender. When we say racism, we're talking about that discrimination backed by systemic power to make it happen. So that it's, because racism isn't just some ideology in the world where someone is better than someone else. I just want to be clear about that. And I love this conversation, Dio, because that hasn't come up in conversations previous. So welcome to episode whatever this ends up being, everybody. Uh, finally, your definition of racism. Um, but I love what you're saying that theology and beliefs about God were used to perpetuate racism, to actually progress it into more harmful ways where then white bodies were traveling to countries where there were more black bodies to literally take those bodies and utilize them as property to advance again the systemic ability to oppress and do whatever they wanted with and so i think what you what you bring up about this reality that like religion and specifically Christianity has a has a, a history to deal with around this. And I, I appreciate that so much. And now I want to go back to what you talked about, the white moderate that you quoted Dr. King on. And one of the words you talked about was pretending. And I'm going to be generous here. And I'm going to speak from my experience with some um, white folks who aren't pretenders. They're gen they are genuine. They have respect. They have they honor the dignity of others. Black, white, brown, Puerto Rican, or Asian, in the words of uh, Little Kim. Um, but they they honor others. So I just don't want to make this blanket statement that sounds like we're saying something that that doesn't honor the reality that there are extraordinary humans in every race that are 
fighting for equity and belonging and justice and biblical sense of justice where all the waters rise together and everyone flourishes together, the picture of the garden. Um, but so when you talk about pretending and, and I want to know what that's felt like to you. You've been in many spaces. You've been around the Presbytery. You've been around other institutions that are predominantly white. And I want to know what does pretending feel like to you? I also want to speak to something that you said about um, the systemic nature too. I'm glad that you brought that up um, because sometimes I feel as though for people who would find themselves in that moderate space, um, sometimes the issue is that when we talk about mm. the systemic reality of racism, um, it can feel so abstract that it's easy to disengage from oneself. Like it's, you know, it's one thing if you mm -hmm. know, you're checking yourself and you're like, I'm not racist. I have black Latino friends. I have Asian friends or, you know, I get along with whomever, or I, I'm, um, I married someone of a different race. Um, there's a sort of personal check that happens where you're like, I don't fit that box because I do this, this or this. Right. And so I think, continuing to highlight the systemic elements is very critical. But also alongside that, I think it's also essential that we have conversations like these where we're able to kind of dig into how the personal and the systemic intertwine. Because if everything is about the system, it's very difficult to imagine how the person, the personhood, the self, right, fits within that. And so I think like finding mm -hmm. a way to go between the two is very essential. But um, to your question about, you know, uh, the middle space, I will say um, exactly like what you said. There's so much grace and recognition for people of, across the spectrum, regardless of race, who are doing the work, right? Anti-racism work, equity work, um, regardless of, of their uh, cultural heritage. Um, so many people, white people included, right? And I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I would say that in the midst of this work, there is a lot of grace. And I know this firsthand because I feel like I used to be more in the middle than like where I am now. Um, growing up, very suburban, very sheltered, um, there was a sort of, there was a sense of um, all of that racist stuff happened in the past. Um, we don't really deal with things like that anymore. Um, maybe there were little cultural moments where, you know, I, I couldn't wear my hair like the white girls, but I could wear braids or little things like that. But um, in terms of like really understanding the depth <laughs> of racism in our history, I had no idea. And I think I found mm -hmm. myself in the, the middle, you know, uh, for a very long time. And not necessarily because of any fault of my own. It just wasn't how I, what it wasn't around me. And so I think that's a really good point to make for people who are in the middle still. There's a lot of grace, you know, there's so much grace. But the thing for me is like, mm. once your eyes are yeah. opened and once you do come into awareness and once you do start to hear the stories and you start to put the pieces together, the next question is like, okay, what do you do now? You know, so there's one thing if you just don't know and you're just not that familiar and you still have a lot of learning to do, a lot of experiencing to do. But once you start to know, then what do you do? If you remain in the middle, I think 
that is where the issue comes in, you know? And I, I feel as if in 2022, um, it's hard for people to remain ignorant of the problems, especially given the past two years mm -hmm. that we've had, right? Um, I mean, if you have a television or you're connected mm -hmm. to social media, then you knew about something going on. Um, maybe, maybe you weren't that tuned into it, but I think there's a... Uh, a greater sense of awareness because you know a lot of people um a lot of white mm -hmm. people said oh i just didn't know there was a problem i didn't realize racism was still an issue people who are a little bit more segregated in their communities you know maybe predominantly white spaces but mm -hmm. now you do know what's next um and so when i'm in spaces that are stuck in the middle in 2022 after all we've collectively been through uh, i feel a sense of um Sometimes frustration, but also sometimes a sense of uh, almost as almost like when Jesus told the disciples that he sent out um, when he sent them out to different towns, like told them not to take anything, just go in where you're accepted, you know, bless the home that you're entering into. But the spaces that don't receive you, you know, wipe the dust off and move on, basically. It's kind of like that sensation. I don't want to spend mm -hmm. too much energy and time trying to convince you that there's a problem. You know, I don't want to spend all of my mm -hmm. resources mm -hmm. um, trying to catch you up to speed, right? I want to put my energy, time, focus, attention um, in the spaces that are doing the work and that recognize that something has to be done and where I don't have to repeat myself 20,000 times, you know? where I can show up, um, mm -hmm. bring something to the table, where you're also doing the same and collectively we can build something better. Um, so a little bit of frustration, but also a sense of if you're not with that, let me just move on to the next space, move on about my business. Because mm -hmm. um, there are enough people doing the work right now. There are enough people who are learning and educating themselves and actually putting things into practice that I feel like um, it's not my job to have to... Um, take on that extra burden of trying to convince those who want to remain in the middle. Uh, so that's a little bit new for me. Maybe a couple of years ago, I would have said um, I felt a little bit more hurt by it or I felt a little bit um, misunderstood. But now, 2022, after all we have collectively been through, uh, after George Floyd, after the protests, after all of it, and you still want to stay in the middle? You know, let me just... Move over here, put my energy where it needs mm. to be, um, and I think mm -hmm. that's—I think that's okay. You know, I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of things that come up for me when you share that. One is, I want to take a moment to uh, acknowledge our audience, and I want to say, if you feel a type of way, if you feel like Dia and I are ganging up on white folks it is something in you locating yourself some way so Dia and I both love our sisters and brothers of every ethnicity and we're having a very specific conversation about race in this country and our experience of racism within different predominantly white institutions, our presbytery being one of them. You might feel a way about that. If something's stirring in you, it's an invitation to locate that. But I would say don't allow yourself to be stuck on the backside of defensiveness or don't allow walls to go up or judgment. 
So when you're looking at, when you're hearing both of us, you're hearing two new worshiping community leaders who appreciate the presbytery, who appreciate the way that Presbyterians invite everyone to contribute to the vitality and life of the worshiping community. We both opted into that. We both benefit from that. We both appreciate that. We both love you individually. It might feel a type of way hearing what we're saying, but I I want you to know that is letting you know something within yourself. And that's an invitation to do work. It's not letting you know that she or I are heretical or racist or reverse racist or anything like that. I'm letting you know that. So you might want to think that that's not true. So I wanted to take that moment because that kind of came up for me when we're sharing because racism isn't just a white thing. It isn't just a black thing. I'm thinking about the council meeting that just took, well, the council meeting from a while back and the audio that just released from that in Los Angeles a week ago. And now we are, the, the, the Los Angeles City Council lost one Latino seat and the city is still clamoring for two other seats to be removed or stepped down for people to step out of their offices. And, and that's not a, a white, black thing. That particular thing happens to be a very complex racial issue. But it was, it was people of color making racist remarks about other people of color. And so just know that we know that this isn't a black and white issue. We're just sharing about our experiences. So I really appreciate you sharing about the space you're in. And for me, what I love about that is how... For me, what I interpret is you cherishing your time and understanding your energy and how you can make an impact because we literally, we have one life. (laughs) And now this is like brother to sister, sister to brother convo where I'm just like, yeah, absolutely. Like you don't have, there are so many books written. If you're at step one, there's so many books. There's literally like we have a page on the Presbytery website that has like, this video and we got you know we got that video we got um brian stevenson's youtube we got this list of great books to get you there like but when it's me or you as a worshiping leader sitting down with somebody in the middle it costs so much energy like for me i think about different spaces i've been in within this presbytery and i just remember walking away from one space in particular and feeling like that cost me way more than I thought it would. I didn't anticipate that. And I didn't like, and I'm so drained and I still need to go pick up my children. I still need to execute against my goals for today, but it cost me so much energy to hear ideas that felt so anti-kingdom from someone that I considered a sibling in Christ. And so that I I consider a sibling in Christ, but it it was so draining. And it's like, that's not my job. That's not my calling. My calling is not to like debate you out of the middle. Not at all. 
Like my calling is to like remind us that we're family and we're all made in the image of God. And that's why the kinship collective exists to end the ways that we other each other. We're all experiencing this stuff, but we have to hear each other's voices. So Dia, one of the things before we get into scripture, you mentioned the ways that we abdicate responsibility. When we, if we talk about it as a systemic thing, then there's nothing I need to do. And if we treat it like just, hey, I'm a great personal person and we and we ignore the systemic thing, then the system, the system continues. And if I don't ignore, you know, now I'm going to try and retry the first thing, but our listeners are so brilliant, I'm not even going to. <laughs> so for you, Dia, when, when you hear that, what do you think are your hopes or some thoughtful practices that people can do? If you find yourself, if you take a moment and say, you know what? I'm a person who's been very engaged in the grand scheme of, of racism. And I've really been like working to try and experience kingdom Christ-centered diversity but on a personal level, you look around and you realize most of your time is spent in kind of homogenous groups. And that could be, it could be homogenous Asian, it could be homogenous Latino, it can be homogenous whatever. Then maybe, maybe you have some work to do around the personal space. If you're somebody who says like, no, 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 I personally, I do this and the other, but you're not aware of the systemic nature of racism or like the grander scheme of how people feel around this or the history of how people have felt around this, or you're choosing to kind of like dig your head in the sand. I know that like, if you had the solution to this, you wouldn't even have time to talk to me. You'd be on a helicopter from one gig to another. <laughs> but since you do have time, <laughs> what are your thoughts today on that kind of deal? What do I do if I find myself or I can locate myself maybe on the spectrum more towards one or the other? I want to echo what you said earlier. I think there is a lot happening within our presbytery that I'm really excited about. Um, yes, it's a predominantly white space, but I think that a lot of uh, people are asking the right questions. Um, I think that they are leaning into the work, and I feel like that's an excellent place to start. And again, I want to echo that there's no uh, shame about where you are, and there is a ton of grace wherever you are, whether mm -hmm. that be way over here on the side of the fence or way over here. There's no, um, there's no shame about mm -hmm. where you're starting or where you have currently ended up. Um, the question is always, what are you going to do next? You know, question is always that. And mm -hmm. if you are in the beginning or if you're in the middle, um, do take the time to educate yourself. Um, just as Mark just said, there are so many resources and people have taken a lot of time and a lot of effort to try to curate those resources. Um, and I would say do mm -hmm. a little bit of that work on your own first um, if you're at the very beginning of the journey because it really is very taxing to have, like, imagine this. Um, if you are in a culture or neighborhood or a church, whatever it might be, where most people look like you and then you encounter one person of color and you want to dump all of your questions or ideas on them, uh, they may be your person. But imagine mm -hmm. them having that conversation with 20 other people 
it gets to be quite a bit, right? Um, so I would say do a lot of the work mm -hmm. on your own first. And then I would say um, something that I love that Dr. Willie Jennings talks about. He speaks a lot about putting your body in location, putting your body in spaces mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. uncomfortable for you, putting your body in spaces that uh, you don't have authority in, putting your body in spaces where you are not the one who has the power. Uh, go in as a listener and as support, um, not as somebody who wants to come in and change everything, has a ton of ideas, and doesn't mean you're, that your ideas are invalid, but it's mm -hmm. just saying if you are at the beginnings or in the middle, go into the spaces where people are already doing the work and assist. Ask what they need help with if they want your help. Um, and just see how you can contribute. There's a lot of work going on, a lot of really great work from a lot of different organizations, a lot of different communities, churches as well. There's enough happening, you know, that you can tap into. And then the benefit of that is like once you start to form those relationships, um, there will be something that you can glean from that that you'll be able to share with your own community. And hopefully that will begin to uh, you know, broaden the diversity within your community. Um, I will also say that doesn't mean appropriating. It just means that deepening uh, of your network is going to be crucial to the next phase of the journey. Um, I, so I think about both. But I also think um, that's for the systemic element. That's for the communal element. But you, we all have to continue to do our work. Like I love what the Kinship Collective is talking about, like otherness. Like we all other other people in some capacity. It's just human nature. Mm -hmm. It's things that we have to work mm -hmm. through. Um, so we still have to do that personal work of checking ourselves constantly. And there are a lot of things within each of us that uh, maybe wouldn't come up uh, in certain comfortable spaces, but if we get around other people that we're not familiar with, something's going to come up. Um, and that's for every single person, black, white, Latino, Asian, whatever it is, everybody's going to have that personal work to do. So that doesn't stop. But the thing is, is that it's essential that you put yourself in places that, um, take you out of your comfort zone. And that doesn't only mean you trying to attract people to check out your program that you're trying to do around diversity. It means that you are supporting what's already happening mm. in your neighborhood, in your community, at your kid's school, whatever it might be. Because that's where the learning is going to take place. And that's where even the personal sort of sharpening is going to take place. Um, those are mm -hmm. some things that come to mind. It, it's less about um, the abstract and more so about the humble act of getting involved in whatever is going on already because the spirit is already moving in this direction. People are already doing this work. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to reinvent yeah. the will and you don't have to start from scratch. There have been a yeah. lot of people, even before our generations, that have been putting in a lot of work, just kind of tap into what they're already doing. Um, those are the first pieces that come to mind. Uh, and then as an artist, always I will always say, uh, check out some art. <laughs> Music, film, visual art, whatever your yeah. thing is, that is um, from a different culture. Um, not Again, not towards appropriation, but just to simply experience. Um, that's a nice sort of gentle entryway, if you will. If you're not ready to dive into a brand new community, uh, go watch a movie that you wouldn't normally watch. Things like that. A little bit gentler. Dia, that's incredible. Those are such helpful handrails, stepping tools, tools to help us move in whatever direction we need to. A couple things that came up for me. The first one, I just want to be very clear. And this is kind of a, it's a newer 
understanding for me because I kind of grew up in the Willie Jennings world of Christian community development. And there are some principles, relocation being one of them, which is like, if your concern is in this community, you sense God calling you to this community, you don't exist outside of that. You become a part of it. And then like the problems of that community become yours. And Jesus modeled this, Philippians 1.19, right? He forsook all of the power of the kingdom of heaven and became flesh and came, walked, considered it not robbery to be God. And um, so Jesus models humility and surrender to circumstances he didn't have to, to be with so that no one could say that there was a temptation unknown to him, that there was some experience of suffering unknown to him. And that's really powerful and important. For me, though, the newer thing is because of the world that I came from, my ministry experience, I always felt like, well, can I really have integrity and serve people who are in a different space than me? Because I'm a person of color, because I grew up poor, I'm very like, I I understand that. And for me, though, I had this understanding that like, I can't serve poor people or my sisters and brothers who are experiencing poverty right now with integrity if I'm not also experiencing poverty. But that's not true. And I and the reason I bring that up, that's my personal experience with this kind of idea because I want to call out you don't have to be a person of color to advocate for justice and anti-racism and equity. And the kingdom of God, like Christ-centered diversity in your community, you don't have to be a person of color. So, and that that's what Dia is inviting us into some of these ways that we can become a part of it. There's another, there's a, um, a flip side of that coin, because sometimes when you don't have that experience, you don't have the humility and you have improper expectations of what is possible not of what is possible, but of how something should happen. Mm-hmm. The other day I had a conversation uh, with a friend and there was an issue with something that their children were involved in. And this person is an extraordinary advocate for people who are not like them. And they said, you know what? I, I don't want to be involved in that because I was involved in that before and it didn't turn out the way I wanted. And I'm not going to put myself in that position again. I'm not mad at this person. That's, that's completely up to you. You do what you want to do, <laughs> but it, but to me, it smelled like privilege. It smelled like I don't want to participate in this. It's not going to work out the way I want it to. It will be too difficult. So while there's a systemic issue in, in what they saw, they were unwilling to get their hands dirty because the last time they tried to get involved, it didn't fix the system. It did change personal lives along the way. And I want to call that out because this happens for me too. There's level of privilege and power that I have. And there are times when I'm, I'm giving and serving with expectation. It is not um, the unconditional love of God. It's like, I'm doing this 
And I really expect there'll be a return on this to me at some point. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about racism and discrimination and how you can get involved, when you're in a position of power, you're like, you may see, oh, this is real easy. If we just change this, that, and the other, then all this stuff will change. First of all, there, there's a there's a lack of humility in doing that. So Jesus modeled 33 years of becoming human before speaking, 30 years before speaking into the thing. We don't have anything recorded about his perspective on anything. And after he endured all of that, then he says, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you this. So there's a period of listening and becoming. But I just want to say, you have to enter in with that humility and to listen well because the rules that apply to you in your life and your own experiences, they, you can only perceive the world, not, you can't only perceive the world, but your own experiences are a huge factor to your lenses and how you perceive what's happening in the world. So when you went to school and you were able to achieve this, that, and the other, and you're able to do whatever you were able to do from wherever you kind of find yourself in life. That doesn't necessarily apply to the next person. They can look exactly like you. They may have had the exact same opportunities as you, but they may have different experiences that have shaped them differently. Mm -hmm. And I bring all that up to say sometimes in cross-cultural ministry, our expectations are inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And you think that like something is, so easy or you think they're like man if they would just do this this way this all would be different and one thing that comes to my mind is like looting or rioting mm. we think about like um rodney king riots i'm thinking about george floyd riots all these things that happen and people are saying like if 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 those people would just channel their anger differently maybe they could make some systemic change here mm. but you're in a position you're outside of this this is what grieving looks like to this group of people right now. So you don't get to say what that looks like. So you have an improper expectation because of your experience is so different. And that's okay. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying when we, when we talk about cross-cultural ministry or trying to create kingdom, there's much more listening and becoming than there is directing and saying. Jesus spent, you know, I never thought about this, but Jesus spent, 90% of his life listening and 10% of his life speaking. And it was after the 90% of, of the listening and becoming and being with and being considered the lowest of the low. He came from Nazareth, not just Galilee, but the, the worst part of Galilee. So I, th those are things that come up for me. Dia, we have shared so much about your experiences. And I'm so grateful for your time in that. And your perspective is so rich and so helpful. I so appreciate you. I want to turn our attention to the scripture. Every time we gather, we're, we look into Revelation 7, 9, this picture of John. John has this vision of what's of the future. And he says, I saw just innumerable amounts of people, but I was able to distinguish various cultural groups and it looked beautiful. So let me read it. And I want to hear your perspective. When Revelation seven, starting in verse nine, John says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes, 
and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne. And they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Dia, today on the back end of all that we've talked about, systemic racism, our personal responsibility, how we become aware, how we engage the history of all this, and how religion even played a part of the beginning of it in our country. What comes up for you today in Revelation 7-9? Such a powerful scripture. Um, and even, I always love your readings of scripture. They come to life um, the way that you embody the words. Um, what really stands out to me, a couple of things, um, specifically in verse 9, I love that even though there's this great multitude, hmm. there's not really, um, at least that I see, not really a passage that describes how the multitude are gathered. So it doesn't talk about the uh, sort of interactions between. It talks a lot about... Um, the throng of people before the Lamb. But what's happening, my question is, what's happening between the people, you know? Because um, it's not, I can't imagine mm -hmm. a crowd of that size just standing there like statues looking up at Jesus, right? Or looking up at the Lamb. Uh, what's mm -hmm. happening between them mm -hmm. and amongst them? Is there talk? Is there chatter? Is there laughter? Um, and I think the angels, mm -hmm. they provide a very beautiful um, example of something that we as human as humans are working towards we're trying to understand how to become a little bit more worshipful in my opinion um and i love that they model uh, what it means to be in the presence of the lamb they model what it means to be uh, in god's great glorious glorious presence right like they show us how to do it and how to do it well they get on their faces and they worship and they praise God, right? So it becomes less about um, them and more about who's in front of them. But that first part of how how are the humans gathered, you know? And, you know, if we keep uh -huh. reading, we understand that um, those that are sitting before the Lamb are those that have gone through some things, right? They have gone through trials and tribulations. Mm -hmm. They have kind of made it through uh, this washing of uh, diversity. And they have uh, they've made it to that point. But I feel as if... The thing about scripture and about the Bible, it is never the period for me. It's always about uh, the comma or the semicolon, if you wish. And it's always telling us uh, there's more, right? Like there's something else. And I think that we are caught in this space of uh, becoming human, just like what you were saying about Jesus, like Jesus, the human one, right? Like we're trying to be more human, like Jesus was human. Jesus is human. Uh, and this idea mm. that we haven't yet learned how to fully be in God's presence Holy, I think is very captivating um, because it means that there's so much more for us. And I love that the idea that comes through John is this sense of doing it together. 
that is the part that gets gets mm-hmm. to me. Like we cannot fully be human unless we do it together, unless we figure it out, right? Like it takes all of us to become the fullness of who it is that God has created us to be, to become the fullness of God's image, Jesus' image, right? Um, it's the sense that there's no um, fullness of dia that is possible until I am around my white brothers and sisters, my Latino brothers and sisters, and so on. I cannot be the fullest expression of myself unless I am in connection. And so it's that part, that how are we coming together before the Lamb that stands out the most to me. Uh, plenty of other things, but it's that. That's the question that I pose of the text at this moment. How are, how are we standing before the throne of the Holy One, you know? Yeah. Mm. You know, uh, when you mention laughter, so I've never imagined that piece. And I love that scripture gives us that space to imagine. And sometimes we just take it at face value and we're trying to like create certainty or figure out the, the algo, the algorithm. We're trying to figure out the, okay, well, if I do this and if I ask and I seek and I knock, then the door will be opened unto me. And then, you know, if I seek first the kingdom of God, then everything will be added unto me. And sometimes we're just taking that face value. I love like none of these conversations have talked about the interactions of the crowd. And for me, when you talked about was there laughter in my mind, I'm thinking there had to be because they're so in awe. They're in this moment in this space where they're all of their senses, whatever senses we would have in this realm are overwhelmed by the throne and the lamb and the reality of what has been done and the reality of where you are and why you're there and the tremendous grace and the tremendous beauty and the tremendous generosity mm. that would bring them in that room. So in my mind, it's like you, there would have to be laughter because when these previous ideas have left the body, because now you're, you're just consumed by this truth and justice and beauty and generosity all just embodied right in front of you you're looking at power and the lamb and you're just overwhelmed by that Mm -hmm. like it just i'm trying like the awe of that the wonder of that so i love i i think they had to have been laughing some folks definitely had to have been black folks for sure (laughs) (laughs) um you know, we, we laugh all the time. We laugh at different things. Um, yeah. Um, you know what, what stood out to me this time is the two amens. So I always think about amen on the back end of something when it's, you know, okay, we're going to pray and amen this, this word that means so be it. Let it be as you said. But the angels begin with amen and they're saying, so be it what they said. What all those different languages, mm. Mandarin, Cantonese, Spanish, French. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just the indigenous languages that are being uttered out of the souls of people. Mm. They're coming up in all these different languages and all these different cultural expressions. Now I'm thinking about Black Panther and the beauty that we feel in the African culture that's celebrated in Black Panther. And all, but all these different cultures are doing the same thing. I'm thinking about the Olympics back in China and Beijing and the beauty of thousands of drums and thousands of people with the dragons and the music. So all of that crammed into one place, exalting God's power, generosity, and I think like crying out salvation, wholeness, 
that word salvation, at least the Greek um, sozo, the, there's this, there's a body salvation, there's a being and a, and a spirit wholeness that like shalom. It's almost like it, may, it might be the Greek version of shalom. Mm. It's like wholeness belongs to our God who sits on the throne, has the power and to the lamb exclamation point. But then it says that all of the, the holy, the angels around, their first thing out of their mouth is amen, mm. amen. So be it. Yes. Yes to what you've said. May it be. May what you said be true. So they start with that. Amen. And then they make their own declarations and end with another. Amen. Which is less enthusiastic. Their first amen <laughs> to what they witness within the culture and the diversity is amen exclamation point. And they make their own declarations and it's amen period. And I've never seen that there before. It's absolutely incredible. It's beautiful. Yeah. Sheesh. What else, Dia? Is there anything else here? Do we do we do we do we cover it all? <laughs> do we cover it all today? Way too much to cover. <laughs> I love how you've mentioned about language. You know, verse nine talks about people and language, but then verse ten says they cried out in a loud voice and you know do mm. they all understand one Ooh. another, you know. I also think about um, language being rhythm, you know, think about rhythm and how something that you can say in one language takes you infinitely longer in another language to say the same thing. And so just thinking about the sounds and the musicality of all of these different languages saying, in essence, the same thing. Um, but how do the people experience mm -hmm. one another? You know, of course, ultimately, it's about how. God is experiencing this, but how also do we hear others praising God, you know, in their mother tongues or in their adopted tongues, you know, or adopted tongues rather. So I think there's a lot there about the symphony, the symphonic element of it um, that I find very beautiful. And the sense that we don't mm -hmm. all have to play the same parts. We don't all have to speak the same language or speak in the same way. It's the essence and the energy around worshiping God together that matters the most. Uh, but I, again, love that it's worship embodied. It's not this abstract thing where we just say a blanket of amen because we like the idea. They're standing alongside one another. That is the part that I just seem to be gravitating towards, verses 9 and 10. Um, this idea that they are in this thickness together, whether they get one another, whether they understand one another. Um, the essence of their being together is to worship God, regardless of, you know, miscommunications. You know, And I love also that it kind of teaches us that when we're interacting with other people, um, we really need to take our interactions from the standpoint of uh, worshiping God. So for example, I can't come to another person who's from a different culture than me and ask them to start from where I'm starting, you know? Um, it's honoring mm -hmm. each person's um, location within the body of Christ. It's honoring each person's mm -hmm. difference um, it's recognizing that everybody is going to come from a different, slightly nuanced uh, place and that uh, the Spirit was intentional about placing them there. Um, but also I think about um, mm. our capacity to be mobile, 
and how we don't have to just remain in what's familiar to us. It, when I think of this, I think of like a mixture of things. I don't just think of one group over here and then another cultural group over here. I think everybody's mixing and mingling. And so it's being able to honor the location of the person next to you while also um, celebrating your own difference, while also bringing your own uh, reality, adding it to the mix in the throng that's worshiping God and praising God. Um, I love this beautiful picture. Um, it's a space of honoring. You're honoring God, but you're also honoring the, those who are sitting alongside you. You're honoring the multitude as well, recognizing that uh, the mosaic of the experience, the mosaic of the image is uh, what makes it dazzling, if you will. You know, it's what makes it beautiful. It's what makes it musical. I love that. And let me see what else, though, because I, I seem to be stuck on verses 9 and 10. But there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, going down to verse 14, um, he's saying, the elder speaking, saying that. Oh, wait, we didn't read verse 14. Out. Hmm? I, I was going to say, we didn't, we didn't read verse 14. So It's good, though. It's really helpful. <laughs> Go I'll for it. it. Go for it. You're go for it. You're in, <laughs> you got no, no, no. Please share. Well, I have Extra the NIV credit. version open. Let me read thirteen first. Um, so it says, "Then one of the elders asked mm -hmm. me, these in white robes, who are they, and where do they come from?'" I answered, mm. "Sir, mm. you know." And he said, "These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb." And I think. Mm. At least for me, it's essential to include this verse because, again, it goes back to that starter part where we started the conversation. Um, nobody present in the scene stayed in the middle. They did the work of washing their robes. They did the work of making themselves clean. They did the work of making sure that how they presented themselves to God, to the Lamb, was as spotless as possible doesn't mean that they didn't need God's grace. We all do, right? But they did their part. And this is the thing. God has covered so much of the gap, right? But there's always that little bit that we need to do that we have to bring to the table. And I think verse 14 is emblematic of this because it tells us that we have a part to play in this. We don't just show up. Um, let me phrase this correctly. Because for people who are just entering into the faith, you can't just show up. And Jesus is going to meet you wherever you are. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that once you go further in your walk, there's something that is required of you. There's something that's being asked of you. Uh, when you are standing before God, again, God is not about the lukewarmness. Either be hot or be cold, because then we can understand how best to address and work with you. But if you are lukewarm, God talks about spitting you out of his mouth, right? And so I think verse 14 is a lot, speaks a lot about what we need to do. We have to do our part in helping to cleanse our collective reality, you know? Um, again, that does not take away from the work that God has already done for us on the cross, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the next step. It's always about what's next, right? What are you doing for the next part of it? Uh, and I think verse 14 is essential for that. And when, how did they get to be in front of the Lamb? They got there because they have they came out of the Great Tribulation and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So they stepped into what God offered. They stepped into the work that God did, and then they did their part. So it's like, for me, mm. it's crucial to have that part if we're trying to understand verses 9 and 10. 
I think what comes up for me as you share that is the empowerment of that. Back to what you're saying about even this conversation is meant to do the same thing that you wouldn't feel debilitated by what we've shared or our perspective on scripture or on biblical justice and the beauty of Christ-centered diversity, but that you would feel empowered. Like there is something I can do. I can read a book. I can go to sfpresby.org or, you know, however we do that. It'll be in the notes for sure. But <laughs> that you can, it's meant to empower you, not disempower you. And I love that, that, that focus on your journey and our journey as Christ followers, that there is sometimes the expectations feel like A plus B equals C. And if I want to be that, then I do this. God's love is unconditional. But the invitation to maturity and participation and ushering in mm -hmm. and not ushering because the kingdom of God is now, mm -hmm. but unveiling, it requires work. So to unveil the, the Christ-centered diversity that we've committed to as a presbytery, means that we will do the work to unveil it. Unveiling means removing, mm -hmm. and it doesn't just happen naturally. So there, we this conversation, just we invite you to take that next faithful step towards gospel diversity. Dia, I'm so grateful for your presence here in this time. I'm so grateful for Inbreak and that you are the leader, the sister at the helm. I'm so grateful to call you sister and to know you, call you friend. Thank you for your time, my sister. Thank you. Thank you. And can I just add one more point to what you just said? Um, Please. There really is always something that each one of us can do. Um, the key is to remember that your next step doesn't have to look like somebody who's been doing this for 20 plus years, right? Like there's no need for you to compare yourself to those at the forefront. If your next step is simply reading a book that someone recommended to you, do that. Or if your next step is uh, reaching out and just inviting someone over for dinner or you know, just wanting to hang out with somebody and getting to know them a little bit better, not pressuring them, but just meeting people that are not like you, do that. Figure out what your next step is because there is always something that each of us can do wherever we're situated. Um, and I think um, I love what you said about uh, empowering. Please allow this conversation and the resources that you read and the work that you do to empower you. It's never to, it's never to shame, going back to that word, it's never to shame, it's never to criticize, it's, it's to uh, say that there's a next for you, there's a next step. No matter what it might be for you, there's always something that you can mm. do and you have the capacity to do it. Um, whatever it is that God is leading to do, you have that capacity and God will help you to do whatever is designated for you to do. I think that's really crucial just to reiterate, mm. but also thank you for letting me be here. It's a gift. And I'm actually, I'm so grateful to be part of the Presbytery. I, I really do see so much work happening. I, you know, I'm inspired by Juan Sarmiento. I'm inspired mm. by what's happening with Nick Warnas. I'm inspired by what's happening with you, Mark. Um, mm. So many different people in other new worshiping, mm. leader, um, new worshiping community leaders as well. Just so many people are uh, trying mm. to dig in right where they are. And so it's, it's a gift and it's an honor, mm. at least from my perspective, to be part of this presbytery. And I'm glad that God has put me on the earth for this particular time to be with this particular group of people. So mm. I am grateful. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. That's incredible. Thank you, Dia. Thank you, family. We will look forward to talking and hanging on the next episode of Realizing Revelation 7-9.